She Said, She Said is to bring you inspiring stories and insights from a broad range of women who are having an impact. These women have many things in common, but the most important is that without an appropriate attention to self-care, they won't be able to do all of the things that they're trying to do to make a difference, and neither will you. That's a long way of saying today we're going to talk about healthcare and a few things that we should all know but that we might be overlooking when it comes to visits with our doctor. I'm going to introduce you to the amazing Dr. Lucy McBride. Dr. Lucy is a physician of internal medicine. She received her undergraduate degree from Princeton and her medical degree from Harvard. Her patients include some of the most powerful people, both women and men, in the Washington, D.C. area. But it's her philosophy and her approach and perspective on integrated care that really sets her apart. Dr. Lucy, welcome to She Said, She Said. Laura, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. It's an honor and a privilege. Thank you. We're so happy to have you. So because our focus is on women, you have the benefit of seeing both women and men as patients. What's the most common theme that you see with women? Are there differences in the way that we approach our healthcare? I'd say that one of the common themes I see in women, particularly in this area, is that patients are struggling to piece together the various components of their health. Let me give you an example. Many patients know to eat healthy, to exercise, to get sleep, to drink water, etc. But a lot of people lack the agency or the tools to execute on those known fundamentals of self-care. And, and often people don't understand why they're not able to comply with the things that their doctor tells them to do every year because they haven't addressed, for example, their relationship with food, their relationship to exercise, their stress, and how stress informs their ability to do the things they wanna do. And so for a lot of patients, I see stress and stress management as the ticket to unlocking a lot of their health issues. That's not to say that every stressed out person is ill or that everybody is stressed out, But I think we can agree that stress is a universal condition, whether you live in Northwest Washington or you live in a six-person hut in the Serengeti. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a universal phenomenon. And I think it's when we address emotional health issues, we're able to really see ourselves from a distance and have executive function in planning how we take care of our bodies. How about differences between women and men as it relates to the the stressed out people that you see? Are there big differences? I really hate to generalize, but I would say that on the whole, and here I go generalizing, that women are a little bit better able to face vulnerabilities that they may have. For example, address that their stress and their their attempt to juggle being a working mother, caretaking their, for, their, for her kids and caring for elderly parents and being a friend, et cetera that women who are trying to juggle a stressful, multifaceted life are better able at looking in the mirror and saying, huh, I need some help. I am not doing this well. I may look on paper that I'm doing it all. Men, again, this is generalizing, men often tend to shove down those feelings and sort of press on. 
And it's always a victory for me to uh, convince anybody that they could take a bird's eye view of their life. But particularly with some of the very type A hard driving men in this city, it's really refreshing when I can get someone to admit that despite the fact that they're at the top of their game career wise, they have vulnerabilities just like everybody else. So conversation is a big component as it relates to that. Um, And you put a premium on sitting down with your patients and really getting them to share. Why is it so difficult sometimes for people to share with their doctor? And dare I say, maybe not always be honest with their doctor. I think there are two reasons. Number one is most doctors do not have time. We all know that there are myriad problems with the current healthcare system. I am in a completely luxurious situation where I'm out of the insurance network, so people submit their, ins- their to their insurance out-of-network benefits, my fees, and so I admit that that is a luxury. What's luxurious to me and hopefully to my patients is that I do have time and I'm putting a premium on time and prioritizing the dialogue and the relationship because there's so much you can do when you have time with a doctor who's trained in behavioral health and who understands the human condition. There's so much we can do education-wise. There's so much we can do in terms of behavior modification to then change outcomes. And talk is cheaper than expensive testing. So I feel that I'm saving patients a lot of money by not needing them to go to the ER, not having them see the cardiologist, because I can tell them that their heart palpitations by examining their heart, checking their EKG, and talking about their stress and their coffee intake is that their, their, their anxiety is the main problem. In other words, number one is, back to what I was saying before, is most doctors don't have time. And it's not that other doctors don't understand behavioral health, although there is a lack of excellent understanding of, of behavioral health in the internal medicine field, but it's not a priority in what insurance companies pay for. Mm-hmm. Secondly, and this is a corollary to number one, is that patients don't feel like they have then a relationship with their doctor. And it really takes trust and rapport to be able to be vulnerable and talk about things that are uncomfortable. For example, menopausal symptoms, sexual health, alcohol consumption, stress. You know, these are the basic biological functions that people are dealing with, how much they sleep, how much they eat, how much they exercise. And eating and consuming includes cigarettes, marijuana, opiates, alcohol. And it's very difficult, I think, for patients to open up and talk about their habits, which ultimately really inform health, Mm -hmm. when they do not feel comfortable with someone who's seeing them for 10 minutes a year and sort of cattle herd style putting them through the system. So I think what happens is people often use the internet for their healthcare. They go to the doctor to check the boxes, and then they go to the internet to try to get information The problem there being that the internet is a bundle of unfiltered information. So I tell my patients who are on WebMD all day long, or many times a week that is, that just like if my car broke down on the Capitol Beltway, I would not get on Google and get under my car and start trying to fix my (laughs) muffler. I would call AAA. would be very resourceful. (laughs) Right. I mean, I might want to and think I can do it all, but I am here because I have trained and I have some expertise. I don't know everything and I don't know the person better than they know, but I do have some expertise. And so what's scary about the internet is that it can provide a lot of 
unfiltered alternative facts mm -hmm. that people then hang on to and, and they're not actually getting the right education. I want to drill down into this, into the internet sort of component and how we can make that more useful. But one question that I want to go back to that I want you to address is how do you structure the visits with your patients? Like how, how does an appointment work with you so that you have the opportunity to really facilitate this dialogue? Because I think this is pretty unique and pretty special. Well, thanks. I, I think that it is unique again that I have time and that's wonderful. Obviously, establishing a rapport takes time. So, you know, it's not on the first visit with a new patient that I would be able to elicit everything I need to get. But I would say that one of the, the biggest jobs internal medicine doctors have and should really hold sacred is our ability to establish trust pretty quickly. And there's simple ways, just like you would do in a, in a, in a new friendship, where you can, you know, establish that this is a safe place. So for example, in with a new teenager, like for the, the patient I saw today, who's clearly got a lot on her mind and a lot of worries about everything from her sexual health to her weight, you know, using humor, you know, sharing a bit about myself without being inappropriate or, you know, crossing boundaries, explaining that this is the kind of stuff I talk about every day. Often I will say to somebody when they mention say their alcohol and make a joke about how much they drink and they clearly want to talk about it but are embarrassed i'll say something like look i've seen it all there's nothing that can surprise me and i'm not here to judge i'm here to help you so what's going on and that's to me the foundation of healthcare is a relationship and unfortunately in the current landscape the relationship is not a priority i think that's really really helpful and i think it's great advice as you're you know, providing advice to our listeners about how they can make that relationship with their doctor stronger. Another just personal observation that I have seen in your practice and, you know, have reference points with my children and with others is that we sit down to talk before the appointment, before any clothing comes off for an right. exam, you actually sit down fully right. clothed. Right. And there's an element of you know, building that trust and rapport before you move on to the physical components that also I think is really, well, at least right. for me as a patient, is helpful in terms of facilitating well, that's conversation. Right. When you're nude in a gown, <laughs> vulnerable. in a cold room on what I call the deli paper, like, you know, like you'd have a pickle <laughs> next to you to be wrapped up for a to-go order, um, you are in a vulnerable position. So for me to walk in and be standing and you're sitting and say, what's going on? is not really a way to facilitate a dialogue. You know, I would love to have a standing desk because I have back pain, but I can't stand because I want to be on the patient's level. We are a team and our goal is to, my goal is to, to, to elicit from you the problems, the complaints, the issues, and then use my filter and us work together. But I think of patients as having four corners of their health. I think a lot of people are going to their doctor every year and addressing the first corner, which is their medical data their cholesterol level, their mammogram result, the findings on their physical exam, their chest x-ray, the data. The other corner in the top right is your nutrition. I believe that nutrition and what you put in your body, everything from kale to ice cream to marijuana to opiates is foundational and as important as your medical data and nutrition informs medical data. And the bottom left corner, just below the medical data, is your body mechanics. So your skeleton, your scaffolding, unlike 
your car that you can trade in every 10 years for a new model when all the systems are broken, we are stuck as humans with our skeleton. So to me, the skeletal health and your ability to move, be pain-free, to exercise is as essential as the nutrition and it informs your medical data. A lot of people are walking around like a three-legged dog. They've addressed the checklist in the top left corner with their doctor. They're eating decently, they're exercising, but their hip hurts. They aren't eating great. They've got a Fitbit. They got a Weight Watchers app. They've been told to lose weight, exercise more, drink less. They don't have any agency and they're not healthier every year. Fourth corner is the mental health. And mental health really meaning behavioral health. I'm not trying to suggest that we all have mental illness. What I mean is we all have heads, we all have brains, and our head is at the top of the totem pole for a reason. It is the creator of all thoughts and feelings, and feelings drive behavior, and behavior informs health. Now you can behave well, you can exercise, eat well, have a good relationship to alcohol, not use opiates, and still have a terrible set of data, BRCA gene, get breast cancer, die young, but what I'm saying is, insofar as most of our behaviors inform our health, we have to address behavioral health and mental health. And that's where stress comes in, that's where mood comes in, we all experience grief in our lives, we all experience loss, and those things all inform how we eat, how much we drink. Today, I saw a widow who lost her husband about a year ago. She no longer just has grief, she has what we call complicated grief, where she's depressed on top of it. She's drinking too much alcohol. Because of her alcohol use, she's more fatigued, she's not going to her exercise class, she's gained weight, and now her hips hurt, and she's in a bad cycle. So when I today addressed her blues and tearfulness, not as the natural progression of losing your husband, but rather as a diagnosis. This is depression. Mm -hmm. Then we can start to unlock the myriad health problems that are driving her feelings of how she of how she feels in her body and her pain. So what advice do you have for patients or healthcare consumers, whatever terminology you use, to really maximize the interaction that they have with their doctor and to think about this more integrated approach that you're talking about. I mean, what you've just described makes perfect sense, but how can people really leverage that or, or find a way to employ this same thought process as it relates to their own doctor? As a patient, I think, I think, you want to, I think there are doctors out there who want to address the whole person. I think they're limited by time, mm-hmm. um, but I would say, come into your doctor's office, to your physical, with perhaps your four corners and your questions about each one. For example, come in with questions like, because my grandmother and my mother and my sister have had breast cancer, should I get my data on breast cancer checked? Now, you're not expected as a patient to know what data you need checked. You are to show up and the doctor is gonna help you with that, but you could inform what the doctor needs to know by bringing up your family history, your genetics, It's also important to discuss how you're eating and discuss how much alcohol you're consuming and how much you smoke cigarettes and how much marijuana you use and how much sleep you're getting and how much stress you have and how your body feels. I think if you if you think about the four corners and you kind of sketched out the problems in each one, Mm -hmm. then you're kind of handing your doctor who may not have that framework some things to work with instead of just ticking boxes. So maybe bringing some notes, bringing notes, bringing notes. What about things like, so we, we touched on uh, self-diagnosis via the internet a moment ago, but, but bringing questions that you have from all of your Googling on WebMD, as well as what about DNA testing? 
What, what are your views on that and how appropriate is that of a tool as it relates to preparing for your visit with your doctor? So genetic testing is a very, very fascinating and fast growing field and it's a wonderful tool. But what I think is that the amount of knowledge and information we're getting about genetic testing is outstripping our ability to know what to do with it. If you take 23andMe, for example, I've never, and I, I really mean never, have changed management in a patient based on a result from 23andMe. It's interesting, but it's not always relevant. So mm. the book I would want to write someday is called Just Because We Can Doesn't Mean We Should. That's not to say that someone who has a strong family history of colon cancer and breast cancer shouldn't be checked for Lynch syndrome, or that someone whose grandmother had ovarian cancer and sister had breast shouldn't be checked to the BRCA gene. But it's very, very individual, so you would not want to use the internet as your resource. You'd want to use your primary doctor and then a geneticist if needed. Dr. Lucy, what should we know about aging as women in our 30s, 40s, and 50s? that may be information that we tend to get through women's magazines, but we may not be having these conversations with our doctors. What should we know and what should we be asking about? I guess I'd say to the 30-year-olds who are worried about aging, just you wait. (laughs) What I'd say to the 40- and 50-year-olds who are on the eve of menopause, I think that's worth a dialogue. It's a different dialogue, of course, than the dialogue with an 80 year old who's who's aging in a, in a in a very different kind of arena you know menopause is a is a is a big thing it's this midlife transition from ovaries making estrogen to ovaries not making estrogen it has to be an individual conversation the reason why there's no good book on menopause is because everybody's menopause is different like your fingerprint is different from someone else's and so it really has to come down to an individual dialogue One person going through menopause may have debilitating hot flashes, night sweats, vaginal dryness, pain with intercourse, sore breasts. And the next person may go through the same chemical transition, the same estrogen levels changing each month and have no symptoms. So you really have to address this on on an individual basis, but it's worth asking patients at their physicals, particularly between 45 and 52, you know, what symptoms are you having? What is going on? you know, vaginally, are you having pain with intercourse? Are you having dryness? Are you having more urinary tract infections, which is a cardinal symptom of menopause? And these are topics people don't really want to bring up. So I usually just bring them up, just like I bring up, are you having erectile dysfunction with my 70-year-old men? They're always relieved that that I asked. (laughs) So they don't have to bring it up. So they don't have to bring it up. Yeah. And then I tell them, oh yeah, well, you could take Viagra like everybody else. And they say, oh, great. There you go. How about your advice as it relates to alternative medicine? What cautionary advice do you have for your patients? Alternative medicine, as a word, has a nice ring to it. And I think there is a lot we can learn from non-Western medicine. However, there is an enormous danger in the alternative medicine space of being very dangerously disconnected from fact-based medicine, evidence-based medicine. If you ask me why has alternative medicine grown like a mushroom over the last 10 years, I would say it's because of the current healthcare system being pretty poor. And because people aren't getting answers from their doctor who doesn't have time, people are going to these alternative medicine doctors. Mm-hmm. My The thing that I see the most as a, as a downside of the alternative medicine 
thing is that people go searching for answers for their fatigue, their body aches, their brain fog, and they come out with a set of supplements and vitamins that aren't really rooted in evidence-based medicine, and they aren't actually typically asked about common human condition things like stress or depression. So in, in a lot of ways, while it while it's trying to be holistic, it actually takes the patient away from common emotional health issues that would be good to address. Mm-hmm. Does that so make sense? It, it does. Well, it sounds like you're sort of talking about the mirror image of the lack of an integrated approach with traditional medicine. You sort of have the same thing with alternative medicines in that you're only looking at one piece of the puzzle. That's exactly right. I think that there's a role for non-Western medicine modalities, acupuncture, meditation. Meditation is a 3,000-year-old trend. You know, vitamin supplementation, certainly nutrition, is very undervalued as something that should be looked at in patients' health. However, I think alternative medicine runs the risk of being so pigeonholed in nutrition and vitamins that they miss the big picture just like Western medicine does, but in a different area. Both are missing mental health and behavioral health. And so I see a lot of patients who are paying a lot of money to see alternative medicine doctors. They're taking, you know, boatloads of supplements and they're not really any healthier. So again, it's hard to generalize, but I think we need to remember that alternative facts apply to medicine as well. And you have to be careful where you get your information. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, mental health, behavioral health are foundational and should be in the doctor's office. If the alternative doctors want to put that in there, too great. I would assume that you must also see potential counteractive effects from certain supplements, certain herbs that people are taking, not realizing that they can counteract other medicine that they're getting from their traditional doctor. And if you don't have the benefit of more conversation around these topics or more sharing or more dialogue, that you really run the risk potentially that you're hurting yourself. That's right. I mean, every supplement we take, every everything we do to our bodies has a risk. So I see people who are taking, you know, 50,000 units of vitamin D three times a week from their holistic doctor, and that actually is causing them symptoms. They're taking nutrients and supplements that are causing blood thinning. I mean, you know, I'm trained in academic evidence-based medicine, so it's hard for me to endorse some of these alternative medicine treatments when, number one, they can do harm, and number two, they can actually kick the can down the road of the patient addressing uncomfortable truths about their behavior. Hmm. It's very tempting to take a pill to treat brain fog, fatigue, stress. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. And I have a lot of hard conversations with patients, whether it's about death and dying or the loss of a loved one or giving a bad diagnosis. One of the hardest conversations is to be straight with a patient who's searching and searching and searching for a pill, a diet, an exercise program, a holistic treatment to address and fix their brain fog, their sleeplessness. And my job, I feel, is my obligation is to really address what's really bothering them. And sometimes it's as simple as a challenging marriage, a child with special needs, a boss at work that's stressful, a mother-daughter dynamic, and, and those are common. A supplement treating chronic insomnia and anxiety doesn't exist. If it does, 
we should all be taking it. Do you feel like you're typically able to get to those root causes with this additional focus on conversation at the top of an appointment? All the time. I mean, as I say, as I say all the time, I see miracles every day. And I, I'm not, I, I mean, I went to Harvard and Johns Hopkins. I'm not a, I didn't train at like a spiritual awakening medical school. I mean, I, 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 I but I, I see the power of the human spirit and I see the power of facing the uncomfortable truths that we all carry with us. That's what makes us human is that shared vulnerability. And it's when we lean into those uncomfortable parts of ourselves that we all have. We all have shame. We all have vulnerabilities. And when we address those and then work on them, health improves. It's not always perfect and it's not easy. And people are much more willing to wall off uncomfortable feelings and behave as if they don't exist. And sometimes that works. But when you can access real sort of deep parts of people's health and the way they think and the way they behave, you can you can achieve amazing things. So let's talk about you. What inspired you to become a doctor? I was inspired to become a doctor when I dissected a fetal pig in biology class in high school. <laughs> and my biology teacher at the time said, you really should be a surgeon. You did You cut that little piglet open like a pro. And I thought... With your exacto knife. Yeah, with my exacto <laughs> knife. With, you know, and so I just thought, wow, that's kind of cool. Okay, yeah. I don't have doctors in my family. I just loved science. I had a lot of wonderful women mentors in high school. And they really pushed me. And the message at my high school was to shoot high, dream big. You can be whatever you want. And I just, I kind of got it in my head. That's what I wanted to do. Help other people. What motivates and inspires you now? Honestly, my relationships with my family and with my patients. I'm very, very inspired by patients' ability to overcome hard things. I've learned so much more from my patients than I ever did in medical school. And I really mean that. It sounds cliche, but I have. So, you know, it takes one relationship with a patient who's dying, like one of my lovely 39-year-old patients who died from lung cancer last year. And to be in that journey with her for the six months that she battled this illness, to realize what's important and to realize the power of the human spirit and to realize what matters. And that kind of stuff is soul fulfilling. It is it is what gets me up in the morning. I mean, it's not to say I want to get out of bed and go to work every single day. I love vacation, but I love... <laughs> people and I love seeing what they're capable of and I love pushing people. What about mentors? You mentioned mentors in high school that were very encouraging to you. What about mentors now? Who do you who do you turn to as mentors or advisors? So, not surprisingly, a lot of my mentors are in the psychology realm because I think and and they're older. So, I have a couple mentors who are 20 years, 30 years older than me who have seen a lot, have done a lot, and they are great guides, and they're women. What about the hardest part of your job? For me, it's caring too much. So I've had to learn to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. For example, I can't access the emotional health, the behavioral health component of every patient. Not everybody wants to go there. Some people want to come to their doctor, get their cholesterol checked, get their prostate exam, get their blood work, move on, see you next year. So I have had to learn 
that not everybody wants the integrated approach. Mm -hmm. And I've also had to learn that patients don't always want to make behavioral changes. So people don't always want to change. People are comfortably uncomfortable in many cases. Sometimes people are comfortably comfortable. So I've had to learn who my audience is and not to over push or work too hard when it's not going to go anywhere. Do you find those particular relationships with those particular patients to be less effective, both for them and for you? I think just like traditional medicine does, you can do a lot for patients by checking their blood work, checking their exam, you know, sending them for their colonoscopy. You can do a lot. After all, that's what medicine is for, right? And some people just don't want the deeper dive, and that's okay. But I've learned over time who I can help and who I can't help. And you can't help everybody, and that's okay. I think it's fair to say your job is probably fairly stressful on a regular basis. How do you manage stress? Well, I try to practice what I preach. I'm not perfect at it. In fact, I call myself a recovering perfectionist. I exercise. I used to be one of those run every morning at 5.45 for an hour, always with a friend, person. I now don't do that. I realized the running was a chore and not a pleasure. And when it crossed that line, I pulled back and now I walk and I do yoga. And if I don't exercise, I don't care. And I'm much happier. My relationship to exercise is much better. I had to learn that the hard way when I blew out my hip, Mm. but that was a good lesson that you have to listen to your body and be moderate and be mindful about how you treat yourself. I eat healthy. I mean, I eat you know, pretty much what I want, but I am careful. And that's never been really an issue for me. I also have done a lot of self-analysis. I've done a lot of therapy. I have mental illness in my family. I also just enjoy the process of introspection, but not so much that you're talking about yourself 24-7 because that would be a real snooze. But I, I do practice what I preach. I ask for help. When I say I'm a recovering perfectionist, I used to think I could do it all. I remember when I had my son Henry, I was a resident at Johns Hopkins Hospital. I was so scared to be vulnerable and be a new mother in this program that was this top-notch internal medicine program. I was trying to exercise and eat healthy and breast pump and nurse him when I was home and be a doctor in training. And I just kind of fell apart. And that was a great wake-up call. And he doesn't know this because he's only 16, but was really linchpin person in changing how I think about myself and is where it was sort of the birthplace of this notion that we have to treat ourselves from the inside out. And so I asked, I asked for help. I don't shy away from asking for help. If I'm stressed, if I'm anxious, I look to person A, B, or C. If my hip is hurting, I've got my physical therapist I call. If I'm, you know, have a medical problem, I see my doctor. I do not try to be my own doctor. So I really try to do what I'm telling other patients to do. Otherwise, I'd be a real jerk. (laughs) What about mindfulness? You mentioned yoga. Do you meditate? Is that something that works for you? I should meditate. But to me, doing yoga is very meditative. I also spend a fair amount of time alone, just thinking or walking and that to me is meditative. I don't meditate per se. I recommend the Headspace meditation app for people all the time. To me, I get my sort of meditative fix from other places. But yes, meditation, if I had time, it would be a great thing to add on. (laughs) And if I ever have a period of not sleeping well, I'll do some breathing before I go to bed, some stretching, that kind of thing. Yeah. 
How about your best advice or life hack? This is something that we ask every person who comes on this podcast. So this could be either advice that you live by, maybe a mantra that you live by, or something that you oftentimes share with others. That's an easy one for me. It's ask for help and don't try to do this alone. Life is hard. Life has a lot of potholes. Life is beautiful. There's meaning everywhere. You can find joy in the silliest things and the smallest things, but it's full of potholes and bumps and we all have struggles. And so ask for help. It's very hard to, I think, when you're a successful person and you're driven and you're used to achieving a lot. Mm -hmm. But if I've learned nothing else over my life, that I can't do it all, nor should I expect myself to. Mm -hmm. But asking for help and having a village is, to me, the key to happiness. You think it's harder for women than men to ask for help? I think it's easier for women to ask for help, but I often find that women need permission to ask for help. I think it's harder for men to ask for help. But I think it also depends on your personality. I think for a lot of patients that I see who are very successful CEOs, you know, running nonprofits. A lot of perfectionists. A lot of perfectionists. And, you know, perfectionism serves you well until it doesn't. And we all blow a gasket, us recovering perfectionists. So you kind of don't want to wait for the gasket to blow to ask for help. But if I tell my daughter anything, it's really to communicate with the people she loves and ask for help, not to expect to do it all herself because we can't and we shouldn't. And when you ask for help and you lean on others, you get back a lot. Yeah. Ultimately, what I think is that behavioral health slash mental health should be in the doctor's office. It shouldn't be a separate organ that we treat. As we know, mental health is often, or mental health services are often not covered by insurance, which is a metaphor for how we think about mental health. And it should be in the doctor's office. It's hard science. We know a lot about the brain. We know a lot about behavioral health. And we know that behaviors affect our health outcomes. So it's strange to me that mental health isn't in the doctor's office. But again, it comes down to the model that we have in this country of healthcare and the way healthcare is reimbursed. And time is not considered a priority. Time with a trusted doctor. Another big problem is that people graduating from medical schools are not going into internal medicine as a field. There are fewer and fewer internal medicine doctors out there. So if you take the shortage of internists who already are short on time, by the time you're 80, you're likely to have a doctor for every body part Mm -hmm. and no one is talking. And those patients, as they age, are at risk for depression in addition to their dementia. They need someone to understand what their goals are, what their end of life goals are, and what, what, what their medicines are doing with each other, and how their medicines may be interacting with each other, and safety issues at home. But that is all relationship-based, and that is all time, and that unfortunately is not being reimbursed. So we see a lot of medical errors and a lot of over-diagnosis and over-medicating older patients who don't have a primary care doctor. What would be your vision for the future of healthcare? If well, you had a crystal ball and you had all the money in the world, what would you do well, to fix healthcare? If I was guiding, say, a private company that was creating its own healthcare and in, in, in internally insured healthcare company for its employees, for example, 
I'd recommend this four corner model, basically a primary care medical home that is not a place to generate referrals from. It's a hub for problem solving. So instead of the primary care doctor being just a gatekeeper, it's a place where problems are solved. And in the medical home, it's not just me, not just me, the doctor, but a nutritionist, a body mechanic, just like you have for your car, you got a mechanic, and you've got a therapist if needed. Now, not everybody needs a nutritionist. Not everybody needs a physical therapist. Not everybody needs a therapist. But at some point, most people need one of those three corners addressed with the the primary care doctor being team leader or chief medical officer, if you will, of the whole kit and caboodle. And unfortunately, that's not the way it works. Is, Is that sort of similar to what you are seeing increasingly with an executive care type model, or is it different? From it's that? interesting. So executive health programs are aimed at big corporate clients to address the quote unquote whole person. But the irony to me is there's really very little on emotional health. There's a lot of box checking. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of over testing. They'll take a non-smoking 30 year old executive and check his lung function, which to me is a waste of money, and then not talk to the same 30-year-old executive about having two kids at home and a stressful job and being the junior partner in a big firm, perfectionism, health habits. These are the people who are drinking too much alcohol to medicate stress. So it's ironic to me that the executive health programs aren't really well addressing behavioral health. And the other problem with executive health programs is they don't have any continuity. So you can go to Mayo Clinic or Hopkins, my beloved alma mater, and use their program. But if you trip and fall in the parking lot on the way out from your executive physical, they say, go to the ER. (laughs) So you can tell I'm a little cynical and I love Hopkins and their executive program is, is great in many ways, but you have to manage expectations of what it's going to do for you. Dr. Lucy, thank you. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you for hosting us here in your office today. It is my pleasure. I will always talk about health and well-being till the cows come home. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. You can learn more about Dr. Lucy via our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. Oh, 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 oh,